0: Have you ever done something online that you ended up regretting? Maybe you left a mean comment on an Instagram post or got into a Twitter war and then realized later that your emotions got the better of you. If you have, you certainly aren't alone. Bad behavior and even online harassment have become so common that institutions are trying to figure out what to do about it. And now designers and researchers are looking at the problem through a scientific lens combing through data patterns, and studying how social biases can affect how we behave, even when we're just checking our Facebook feed. Welcome to Science Island. I'm Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham, and today I'll be talking to Caroline Cinders, a designer who looks at what happens to online communities when our social biases come into play, about what her team at Wikipedia is doing to combat conflict and harassment on the site
1: things evolve. We have to let them evolve. We have to move with the evolution of them, and sometimes we have to speed up that evolution.
0: This is KACRLP 96.1 FM, and you're listening to Science Island, a dive into the world of scientific innovation and discovery. Next up, how scientific research and analysis might be part of the solution to the problem of online harassment, here on Science Island. Hey, Grant, do you remember Gamergate?
2: I do. Um, This was 2015, I want to say, and there was basically like this online movement that kind of turned into a harassment squad against female game developers, as I recall.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And it was sort of on a more massive scale than some of the online harassment that had been seen up until that point. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah. So I was the technology editor for Newsweek at the time, and I remember putting some of my reporters on this, and it was actually a really terrifying thing to do because you never knew where these people were going to lash out next. and. They lashed out at some of my reporters, and I remember making a conscious effort not to put women reporters on because I knew the harassment would be worse for them. And that's actually something I think about, and I'm kind of ashamed in my Mm -hmm. editing. Um, I kind of pulled my punches because of this horrible harassment squad which was going around on the web.
0: Yeah. And GamerGate, was something that seemed to redefine what was okay and what wasn't okay in some online communities for better or worse. It's something that maybe we're still dealing with on an online cultural level. Do you think that people at all behave themselves better in that online space, in that video game space um, than they did a couple years ago?
2: I'll give you my honest answer to that. And I think what I missed in GamerGate in 2015 was that Donald Trump was going to be president in 2017.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was the same exact types of online ickiness which helped get Donald Trump elected that fueled GamerGate, and it was the same people that were involved in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah, and this... This type of behavior where people are acting differently than they would like face-to-face with a human being, when they're treating people differently because they're online, it's sort of a consistent way that we expect to behave with technology. Why do you think that is?
2: I think my biggest fear is that it's because that's who we are when we close the door at night and there's no one watching us and that's who everybody is on the internet. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a horrifying thought about humanity. But I kind of think until we treat the Internet like we do when we're in public, where we feel shame and we realize things we do will be associated with us forever, until that happens on the Internet, I don't think that this is going to go away.
0: Yeah, and that realization that what you are saying or doing is going to be forever available for anybody to look up at any time like your great great grandkids can look up like what I searched for today oh, man. <laughs> it's it's so That's big that it's like something that our brains can't process right like we know this in um in an objective way but we still aren't modifying the ways that we interact with things to reflect that and later on, I'll be talking to um, Caroline Sanders about the ways that we experience technology. She has some really interesting research and thoughts on the fact that, you know, when we had, quote, horseless carriages, um, we were thinking about cars in a totally different way than we do now. And maybe even 10 years from now, we're going to think about how we used to interact with technology and just be like, wow, I can't believe we didn't have the online equivalent of a seatbelt. Like, what What were we
2: thinking? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, so tell me about your interview today.
0: So I'll be talking to... Caroline Sanders who is um, a designer and an analyst, she's currently with the Wikimedia Foundation, working on um, Wikipedia in particular on the anti-harassment tools team, and she does a lot of work around social bias and technology and artificial intelligence. Um, so she has some really interesting patterns and things that she's noticed. Um, And she's also one of the sort of brave people to take a scientific lens and try to put it on something as complex and overwhelming as the online spaces that can create
2: things like Gamergate. Is she optimistic about online discourse?
0: I think she is inherently because this is what she's choosing to do with her life. Like if she didn't think it was fixable she wouldn't be spending her life's work doing it. And that's true of the team that she's on. It's probably true of people at other organizations who are deciding to try to broach the subject in um, in a methodical way, in a thoughtful way. Um, So there's definitely that layer of
2: optimism at the root of it. And she was sort of inspired by Gamergate, right?
0: Yeah, the way um, she's described it to me is that she was just so appalled by what was happening with Gamergate and thought that there were some really basic things that could have been done to understand better what was going on that were scientific in nature. So for example, doing some ethnographic research and noticing, hey, it's mostly women who are being targeted. And you could have flagged that so much earlier And started dealing with the consequences of that before it became something that was so out of hand.
2: Gamergate was sort of a unique phenomenon, too, because it was making an effort to brand itself as one thing and then was something else. At least that's how it seemed as I was covering it. Mm -hmm. It had this tagline, which was, it's about ethics in video games. And what the relationship between that and the female developers like it it got very tenuous and kind of fell apart quickly and that made it really hard to report on because you were dealing with a branding effort and then a harassment campaign and it's where does one start where does one stop Mm -hmm. and one of the things that we did at newsweek was we tried to actually put some data behind it we found out that the majority of Gamergate comments were harassing these female web developers on on Twitter and weren't complaining about ethics and journalism. But that data aspect was a huge part of the story that we just didn't have. I mean, this it's weird to say because it was such recent history, but it really was like a nascent moment in Internet discourse.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's um, go ahead and bring on our guest for today's show to talk more about this. Caroline Sinders is using the latest forms of data research and tool building to try to combat online harassment. Caroline, welcome to Science Island.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Caroline,
0: I think it would be fair to say that all of us have experienced a range of emotions when interacting with technology, whether that's going online or dealing with a GPS device that maybe is a little wonky. Why do you think these inanimate objects and online environments, why do you think they kind of um, get such an emotional response from us?
1: Well, I think we live in the age of ubiquitous computing, and we live in the age of social networks. So really everything we touch or do from the ambient displays in our home to sort of the peripheral design of our homes now to our daily lives, to our jobs, pretty much all t- touch technology, regardless of where you work. And we're still sort of figuring out, I think, what I like to call the seatbelts of, of software. Um, you know, we have usability and accessibility standards, um, but they can differ from site to site. You know, you have material design versus iOS, you know, and you have all these different design patterns within this. You have, like, the layout of Facebook and, like, a specific kind of hierarchy and the design within that. Um, you know, you have, like, standard mobile mobile design, but it can deviate from platform to platform as well as, uh, like, maker of specific smartphone to smartphone.
0: Yeah, and as part of your um, work on the anti-harassment tools team at the Wikimedia Foundation, um, you're getting to maybe have a hand in setting up those standards, which I'm sure is pretty exciting for you as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, again, we're kind of in the age of figuring out... um, how do you define and look at online harassment? Like what are all the different forms of harassment? How do they differ from platform to platform? What are they called? What are the platform responses? And then how do they occur? Uh, Every space you interact with that's digital has been designed. I always like to say it's not a bug, it's a feature until it's fixed. So, you know, every space you touch, uh, if it's digital, if it's made with software, someone sat and made a decision about how you interact with that space. And so right now I think we're sort of figuring out, like, are there different kinds of features you need to mitigate harassment? If the digital conversations we're having are leading to harassment, then perhaps the shape and space and what you can do inside of that digital conversation can help mitigate or actually, like, either can help mitigate online harassment or does it actually help make harassment occur? And what I mean by that is, you know, do we have online harassment or is a portion of online harassment on Twitter the way it is? For example, because there's so many things users can't do to stop it. Um, there's so right. many different, like you know, there's so many different things they can't actually do the way you can do something face to face. Like I can walk away from someone. The digital equivalency of that is closing my laptop. But you know, when, but when I open it back up, when I go back to Twitter, that stuff's still there. When I walk away from a conversation face to face with someone, the conversation won't be, like, if I, if I get into a fight in my doorway, the conversation, the exact conversation we had won't be in my doorway two days later, but it is there on Twitter. Um, you know, how do you think about creating or designing a feature or a thing or a privacy setting or a filter of some sort that users can enact to really have more agency inside of their conversations? Um, you know, if I'm catcalled, on a street corner, I'm not catcalled the same thing over and over again on that street corner at the same time every day, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what happens in these digital spaces is you can't just walk away from something because it's still there because it's 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 a written communication. It's a written communication that's stored in data and it's caught and saved there.
0: And that can certainly take a toll. Um, you've said before that harassment can actually be thought of as emotional data. What do you mean by that? So
1: all of our interactions online are, uh, they have a, an aspect of, of quantitative data analysis, right? Cause there's time and date, there's length, there's the inter- there's like the network analysis of who you're talking to, uh, you know, your social graph comes into play. But the context of what's being said and what you're writing is emotional data because it's a conversation. Like we're living, I would say, happy, sad, tenacious, fulfilling, mundane, malaise-ridden lives on the Internet because we're just living on the Internet. And that's not bad. We have these tools that make it easy for us to interact with one another um, in ways we, we couldn't. Uh, and we're sort of... And we're building lives. And that's that's great. Like, that's what the Internet's designed for. And that's not a bad thing. So the conversations we're having, they are emotional data because they are, are human conversations with other people. People fall in love on the Internet. People... Find friendships on the internet, um, and the conversations you have with people you care about are is a form of emotion. And the the fights you get into on the internet are also um, emotions as well, right? Like all of these things that you do inside of these digital spaces have uh, are ridden with emotions because it's human interaction.
0: In the spectrum of human emotion, it can be really broad. How do you and your team? begin to approach such a broad spectrum with that sort of rational or scientific
1: lens. You know, one of the big things we're doing right now is trying to define what are the different kinds of harassment that exists on the encyclopedia. And a lot of that has been defined, and we're also trying to think of or look at not just everything as harassment, but what are things that are inherently conflict-ridden? Creating a, a space for debate, you will have conflict. Not all conflict is bad, but not all conflict is good. And when does that conflict turn into harassment? When does that harassment turn into abuse? Is it frequency of the interaction? If someone does something to you every day for a year, I would say that that's abusive, even if it's something as innocuous as liking a post of yours or saying thanks. Um, you know, So how do you think of interactions and then create really kind of a taxonomy around when things become harassment, when things become abusive?
0: That's really interesting, the idea that even doing something positive, like liking something, if it's too much, it's just, you know, it sort of invades that person's personal
1: space. Totally. Or if someone has, or if you have a problem with someone and you're told you're not supposed to talk to them, but you know, you know that you can like something, then are you digitally stalking them if you've been told to not interact with them and you like their content?
0: Right. And, and the team that you're a part of, is fairly new. Was there sort of a, a tipping point or a decision to be made about actually forming that team to deal with online harassment?
1: Yeah, the the, the Wikimedia Foundation is incredibly dedicated to uh, addressing the gender gap of editors on the encyclopedia on the various wikis. And the foundation knew that that there has been a history of some harassment on the encyclopedia. And they are incredibly invested in how do we mitigate this, how do we handle this, and how do we address this so we can have a healthy and, like, flourishing community.
0: My first job out of college was at a news website, and a big part of my job was going through the abusive reader comments on reported oh, wow. blogs and removing them by hand, one by one, um, just to make the, you know, the blog a positive space And I certainly came across a lot of sort of pushback around, well, if we're online, we don't have to, quote, behave ourselves. Have you
1: guys run across that in your job? It's not so much behaving ourselves. It's that people feel like there are different things they can do on the Internet. And I think what you get in a commenting section is like sort of the same as a conversation at a bar or over coffee, except it's with people you don't know very well or you don't know at all. And because you don't know them at all, because you can't see their faces and you can't take in all of this other emotional data from a conversation like tone of voice, tone of voice is a great indication of the kind of emotion someone is feeling. You can't see how they're, you know, gesticulating or talking with their hands. If they do that, you can't hear volume. So you can't really infer what they're saying. And you can only go based off this very literal thing, which are the words that they're typing. And you have to make your own assumptions based off a person you don't know. And so if someone says something that's very short, like a very short statement, and some of the words are more negative, the assumption is that that, that may be a more accusatory or more angry comment towards you. And, again, you don't know. Um, there have there have been, like, studies done, um people have talked to various trolls where they just didn't think or they didn't realize how painful their words were. And they seem to have real remorse, even though in the moment they were engaging in really prolifically angry interactions. What they were doing, you know, you would say is inherently aggressive. It's very easy to type and throw something into a void. It's very hard to say that, like to say something angry that you've written to someone's face. And I think if you were to do a project where you had people read their like comments inside of a a newspaper or some of like the Twitter harassment back and forth to each other, I think you'd find people faltering and actually not wanting to read the words that they've written or having a really hard time saying it to someone.
0: Do you think that the work that you're doing, the job that you have, is going to look significantly different, say, five, six years from now?
1: I think so. I mean, I, I think right now we're kind of, you know, we're at the point where we're like, Hmm. Like, you know, that moment when cars were like, maybe we need airbags and seatbelts, but we don't know what those are yet. But we need something in the car. I think we're at that point. We don't know, you know, that our solution is a seatbelt, but we know that we need something. And I think in five or six years we'll have seatbelts and airbags is the way I like to think of it.
0: That's really, really interesting. And do you, if you were sitting down and talking to say somebody who is part of the next generation, of designers and people doing the type of work that you're doing, what do you think um, their sort of main challenge would be? What do you think they're going to be working hard to address?
1: I would say don't assume that changing the products we have now or by altering their interfaces or by changing the way that people can interact with them changes the product's uh, characteristics or identity because people need agency. They need to be able to protect themselves. I actually just lectured at Stanford and I was talking about some examples of how i would change twitter or facebook to be um more amenable for users to have more agency to kind of control interactions that they were receiving and someone's like well doesn't this just change what twitter is and it's like no because twitter is still 140 characters it's still an embeddable media you know you still have a wide volume of things being able to decide that some tweets are are private or being able to decide that you don't want replies on certain tweets doesn't doesn't wholly change twitter it makes it safer for people to use so don't assume that that you know more than your users do. Don't assume that, you know, that the way something is is the way it has to be. Um, you know, if that were the case, would we call cars still horseless carriages? Would they be designed a different way? Would we have driverless cars, right? Uh, things evolve. We have to let them evolve. We have to move with the evolution of them. And sometimes we have to speed up that evolution. Talk to people. Talk to your users. Don't assume you know more than they do. Make sure you work with people that don't look like you so you can hear their experiences and how a product is different for them.
0: And a reminder, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KACRLP 96.1 FM. This is Science Island, and today I'm talking to Caroline Sinders, a designer who analyzes how people interact with technology and artificial intelligence. Caroline, do you think there's more that we can be doing culturally to support the work that you're doing outside of a UX environment?
1: Oh, gosh, that's such an interesting question. Um, it's pushing for more diverse employees inside of technology. It's, you know, if you see someone talking over a marginalized person, speak up, say something. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. I think if we had if we had, had more diverse engineers, C-levels, execs, Boards, for example, we wouldn't have this much of an online harassment problem. We would still have harassment, we'd still have problems, but we would have started fixing it many years ago. We wouldn't, it wouldn't be starting now.
0: Do you think that people are getting better at interacting with technology and artificial intelligence? Do you think there's sort of an uphill climb?
1: Totally, there's an uphill climb. I think people I think people hear the word artificial intelligence and they think robots or they think humanoids, and that's not what artificial intelligence is. And I think people hear machine learning and they assume that it's a hyper-accurate, crazy, new, opaque technology, and it's not anyone that works with machine learning knows that sometimes you don't know why you get the results you get and you have to work backwards. Machine learning is just a different kind of technology.
0: Sure, and it sounds like, you know, you've really gotten passionate about it. How did you end up in this kind of work? How did you kind of first get interested in it?
1: Well, I've always been really interested in communities on the internet and I wanted to look at communities and protests and I wanted to design things for communities and it's funny because that's what I get to do now. Um, But I was really interested in how the design of spaces uh, felt really generic and how you know, you had these massive protest movements happening on Twitter, the Arab Spring, you had the rise of Anonymous, and how they were like the same places you would talk to someone about, you know, music or the same space and interface you would use to flirt with someone that you hadn't met, you know, or maybe you had met them, but you were interacting on Twitter. So I was making interactive video games using photographs, and um, Gamergate happened, and I remember thinking, how it had all the hallmarks of a protest campaign except the context of what they were doing was harassing women on the Internet. And then I found it to be even more fascinating that it took people so long to understand that's what Gamergate was when that was so obvious to me. If you just sat and did some really basic ethnographic research, you could easily see what Gamergate was. It was a harassment campaign. Um, And I found it to be really fascinating that No one started to look at amplification and the amplification so looking at volume inside of interactions, because there's no way to address volume when you're receiving harassment or sending things out. There's no way to sort of adjust a tweet once it's gone viral. And so I was really, I mean, i had been analyzing viral content anyway around protest campaigns, but I don't think people were looking at it from the other side of what happens when your tweet goes viral because you're being harassed, or rather you receive all this interaction and it's harassment. I think the assumption was a lot of interaction is good. That's how you become a power user. That's how you become a Twitter celebrity. That's how you become a brand. And not thinking about, oh, at the opposite end of this, that's also how you become a harassment victim. That's how you become a well-known harassment victim. And how do you sort of deal with that kind of notoriety?
0: Do you have any advice for people who have young kids who are starting to interact with technology and go online when it comes to dealing with this
1: stuff? Totally. Uh, teach them di- digital literacy. You know, uh, teach yourself digital literacy. I would say the Internet is a great place to be on the Internet. Um, but it's important to have a conversation around the way you'd have a conversation around, like, interacting in the world. Um, except with this, you have to talk about permanence. So, you know, if you say something that's really not nice about someone and you say it in a public place like Twitter, you that can be pulled up later. Uh, I think a bigger thing that parents should think more about is um, how they're often their kids' biggest threat models. And what I mean by that is I have a 17-year-old stepsister, and I love talking to her about the Internet, and I'm often the person that's just like, you probably shouldn't do X on Snapchat because you don't know how safe their protocols are, and if they get hacked, then all the private messages you've been sending to people will just kind of appear, you know. So a lot of the conversations I have with young kids is, I know that your biggest scary thing is your mom or it's your parents going through your phone and that's why you have multiple Instagram accounts. That's why you delete things after a while. Like They're pretty aware of digital per- permanence because their parents are looking at them. What they aren't thinking about though is really understanding that just because they deleted something off of a platform, that doesn't mean it's totally gone. And so they don't quite understand that kind of digital per- permanence yet. And what I've tried to explain and still sort of working on is we don't really own these products. we're kind of on borrowed time with 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 phones like we can't open it up and change it, so do we really own it if we can't open up our iPhone um, You don't know how like you don't know if your stuff is stored on Snapchat or not. Um, if you want something to really be deleted, you should be using signal. They don't store any data and they're open about it. Um, this is a probably convoluted answer that maybe makes parents more nervous than less nervous but I think the big thing to keep in mind is I think most parents are worried about their kids getting abducted off the Internet, and what they don't realize is, like, their kids are more afraid of their parents finding out about their digital habits.
0: Really interesting. Caroline, this um, has been really illuminating. Um, I think it's going to make all of us, um, including our listeners, think about our online lives a little bit differently. Thanks for um, chatting with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat.
0: That's it for today's episode of Science Island. This show is produced and hosted by myself, Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham. Thanks again to our guest, Caroline Cinders. We'll see you here next week.